If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is Brett Weinstein. We catch up after four years to the day from when events at the Evergreen State College launched both of us into a completely different way of communicating and being in the world, specifically for me, launching my career as a media content creator and Brett Weinstein, launching him into the public eye. We spend this hour and a half retrospectively speaking about Evergreen. We also speak about the events of 2020, spend a lot of time talking about COVID-19 and the scientific community's discussions, or lack thereof, of the treatment of that issue. Well, both the treatment of the virus and the treatment of how to deal with the virus. Very enlightening. Uh, Brett Weinstein is a friend of mine, and I am glad to know him. So without further ado, here is evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein. Okay. You don't, you're old enough to recall that. I guess so. Um Okay. <laughs> See, this is, I, I wanted to not have like awkward beginnings. So let's but, start over. Let's be like okay. we just got online. We're just, hey, there it is. Brett Weinstein. Benjamin Boyce. Good you, to see you, my friend. Yeah, it's oh. great to see you, right. too. Let's go back and do that again. That was awkward. How are we going to Okay. I'm going to wait for you to stop, right? Blink twice at the point you've completed your thought, and then I will respond. What if I don't have a thought? Or what if my thoughts are infinitely common? That's why I use the M dash so much. N dash. I'm a big fan of the M dash. Yeah. Most people don't use it. They do a double dash on Twitter. And you're like, guys, get it together. Use that gloriously long dash. So the size Actually, of the M. You've just outed me. I use the double dash because it is an M dash. Does it autocorrect? Sometimes it doesn't. I don't know. I mean... Frankly, I'm struggling enough with the spelling that uh, being pretty with the dashes is uh, not a high priority for yeah, me. Yeah, I know, right? Um, so human interest level, you're not a professor anymore, but you still profess. Mm. So, And actually, I was thinking that a lot of your colleagues, uh, in, in the though you're not a professor anymore, but a lot of professors kind of have been doing what you do since COVID. Everybody went online. Um, but you were kind of ahead of the curve. And I was just wondering about what it's like to do what you do. Like, what do you find amazing about it? And what do you find disappointing or dissatisfying about this form of uh, knowledge production and communication? It's actually pretty simple. For me, there's a lot that's great about it. I reach a lot of people. They seem to have their perspective usefully altered by what I do and what Heather does on Dark Horse, and that's very rewarding. It is, in some sense, an extension of what we were doing 
in the classroom at Evergreen. So there's a part of it that's very natural. And then there's a part that doesn't function the same way that those um, high-touch classrooms did, which is we don't know the names of the people we're talking to. We don't have a good model of what goes on in each of their minds. We can't teach to anybody specifically. So there's one aspect of it that's more like standard teaching and less like the, the glorious part of what used to go on at Evergreen. And I miss that, you know, I also miss being able to go into the field. You know, how great would it be if we could take our audience to dry falls and hike around and then gather around the campfire and talk about what we saw and what it meant. And we can't do that anymore. So I miss that. Um, and I also miss the, I miss the students. There was this experience every time I taught a class, a new one, I stood at the front of the class and I, you know, let's say it was fall and I'd been thinking all summer about what I was going to say to students on the first day. And then I got up and typically would say things that weren't what I had planned, but nonetheless did the job. And as I was doing it, I would look out on the sea of faces that many of them I had never seen before. And I would think, all right, who is it who's going to show themselves to be willing to play ball early? There's always a few who are, you know, excited to discover that they've joined a class where they're invited to challenge what's being presented and we can volley back and forth. Who are they going to be, right? You never know. And so I miss that. I miss the anticipation of a class. I miss discovering what it's going to be about over the course of terms or sometimes a full year. And frankly, a lot of friendships were developed with students who really uh, wanted to know about evolution, whether they thought that was important to them when they entered the class or not. And so that process that was constantly revealing new interesting people and creating friendships is no longer. But the audience is very large. We do meet people. And, you know, I can't, I can't complain about the feeling of having an impact. That, that does feel pretty darn good. Mm. In the college experience, there was this cycle with time and at Evergreen, it was the quarter system. So you'd have your summer off, maybe you did some summer teaching, but you, you know, there's this, these blocks of time where you had time to reflect in the internet land. And I guess you have to impose some sort of structure on it yourself, but there's this constant need for content how do you manage that and how have you adapted to that? It's a great question and I'm not sure that we've found a good balance. I will say I taught in the summer, maybe it was twice. I really disliked it and not because there was anything about teaching in the summer that wasn't fun, but because the break was absolutely necessary in order to do the job well during the year, I thought. So anyway, my summertime was something that I, I protected. I learned to protect it. That obviously doesn't exist in internet land, right? It's always there. And there is this constant pull to participate. And I have not found a, a proper way to manage it. Somehow, some part of me will become almost allergic to social media and I'll find myself 
leaving my phone places so that I am not drawn to it, not logging into various sites. As for the podcast, well, Heather and I started doing very regular podcasts early on in COVID. And at first they were COVID focused because there was a need for biologists to weigh in on what COVID was and what it meant. And there was no shortage of content. Now we are not COVID focused. It comes up, but it's not the, the main topic. But the world marches on. And I can't say that there has been a week in the last year in which there wasn't too much to talk about. There always mm -hmm. is. And so it's kind of natural. But how we're going to arrange something like a break without uh, leaving our audience feeling betrayed, I don't know. And it is something we're going to have to figure out. So if there's infinite stuff to talk about, and there's always something relevant, how do you refresh or keep your own way of processing that information fresh and developing? What are some resources or sources of uh, renewal? You know, I think it's actually just a natural extension of the way the way I and we think and the toolkit that we built up studying evolution. There's really nothing special that has to be done because when you look through the evolutionary lens at topics that are naturally a good fit for it, the insights are just a regular feature of the landscape. And what we discovered teaching for 15 years continues into podcast space, which is that people are starved for a proper grounding, for a way to look at their world that makes it less confusing and complex and more comprehensible. So in some sense, uh, just simply reporting how this looks from an evolutionary perspective creates a conversation for which there is uh, a, a tremendous need. Earlier in your venture into virtuality, I worked closely with you and we developed a series of videos on evolution specifically or evolutionary theory. I still don't I, – I did a lot of research that year, 2017, 2018, and got into evolution and tried to make it make sense with myself. But there's always something going on with me where I'm resisting it in a way. So I, I still haven't really figured out the algorithm of it. And how does it – like what is it made out of? What kind of rationality is it causing or what's the mechanism down there in the roots of it that just yeah. creates all this information and thought? Good question. So there are a couple keys that you need. First of all, most people care about evolution as it affects them. So most of what goes on in evolutionary space is pretty much outside of their area of interest until it gets to at least people. In order to understand people, you have to understand that culture and genes both evolve. They do not evolve separately. They have a direct relationship with each other. And neither one is more important. They have a uh, yin-yang relationship. Genes evolve slowly, but they have control over the space. 
culture evolves quickly, but it is subordinate to the gene's objectives. So once you understand that, then the question is, okay, what is evolution? Well, the first thing is most evolution is random and it makes no difference. So when we talk about evolution, we are almost always talking about adaptive evolution. And adaptive evolution is a tiny subset of the whole, but it is all of the important part. Now, to understand it's the remainder, it is the remainder, but it's the remainder, you know, like if you looked at the stock market and you said, what's going on here? Right. Well, almost everything that's going on there is noise. It has no meaning whatsoever. If you're interested in the stock market, you're not interested in the noise. You're interested in the signal. That's where the profit is to be made. This is the same. The signal is a tiny fraction of the sum, but it is the fraction that matters. And then the thing that I think is hard for people to grasp is there are amplifiers in evolutionary space that are responsible for the power of, of evolution to shape creatures. And think about it this way. You are the product of an unbroken line of successfully reproducing creatures that goes back at least three and a half billion years. Unbroken, not a single ancestor ever failed to reproduce. That is an amazing run of good luck. That good luck is about to run out. Almost no matter who you are, the line that has continued unbroken for three and a half billion years is almost certain to be broken very soon. And it is only the tiny fraction that avoids that fate that will be responsible for the future generations. So what you have is an editing process that doesn't look like other processes, where only the tiniest fraction continues over any length of evolutionary time. And that tiny fraction disproportionately carries the subtle changes that make a difference. And the accumulation of those subtle changes are what distinguishes you from a single-celled organism, right? It's what makes up the stuff of success. The cutting room floor is full of almost everything, and it is only that tiny rarefied subset that gets accumulated and sticks. And so that process just naturally happens to create miracles as a regular matter, hmm. right? That's what we don't get. They're, the patterns that evolution, that natural selection produces are tantamount to miracles, and they are the result of an incredibly picky editing process that keeps only the cream of the crop. Hmm. The cream of the crop. And yep. so how do you apply that in a way that, or how have you seen people react to your repre repackaging of various phenomena, let's just say in the cultural space, through this lens, through your tool toolkit, how, do, how does that give people grounding? What, what have you seen that gives people help or hope or uh, surety in the chaos, all that noise of the cultural domain? Well, let's try it this way. People, almost all of them, use heuristics to think. And we all do. I'm not, I'm not arguing that I'm an ex exception to that. But you have to use heuristics, which means basically cheat codes that allow you not to have to calculate everything longhand. Mm -hmm. And mostly these cheat codes work, 
right? If I see a video and it looks like Benjamin Boyce, it's probably Benjamin Boyce. Now, increasingly, that heuristic is going to break down as deep fakes get better and better, and it's going to be harder and harder for me to detect what you may actually have said or what somebody wants me to think you've said. But in general, I can assume if I see you, it's you. That's a good cheat. I don't have to, you know, test your DNA or look at your fingerprints to establish anything. But the problem is, when it comes to difficult frontier evolutionary logic, people want to use their normal heuristics for figuring out what's true. And by and large, if you go to a biologist and you say, tell me the difference between DNA and RNA, and the biologist says, well, let me tell you, and then they give you a list of a couple of differences, right? What are the chances that what they've told you is wrong? Almost zero. So what you've done is you've used a heuristic, which is that socially, these people pretty much know what they're talking about in biology space. And so if I go to them and they tell me something, I don't have to go check it, right? I just accept it. Now what happens if you have a pandemic and you want to know about a virus and where it probably came from and what it's going to do and what you should do to protect yourself? And you think, well... I'll just use the same heuristic. I'll go chat with a biologist. And in fact, I can do better. I can go chat with a virologist. Your heuristic doesn't work. It doesn't work because almost every, every, almost every virologist has a conflict of interest, right? Their field is now, A, a, a highlighted field. Mm-hmm. So there's some jockeying for position, you know, who are the virologists worth talking to? And then there is concern in this case about, what role virologists may have played in creating the pandemic. So there's obviously a narrative that is discounted and another narrative that's elevated. And so the heuristic that allowed you to figure out what the difference between DNA and RNA was doesn't allow you to figure out what's going on in a pandemic. And what that means, actually, Mm -hmm. is that if you have a general toolkit, right, here's how I figure out what's going on, and I don't lean too heavily on social information, right? I check social information and I figure out which biologists I can listen to and which ones are sending up red flags, right? Then I can actually outthink a field. A corrupt field is actually easy to outthink because it's constantly saying wrong things as it's protecting its interests. Hmm. So in any case, I think part of the relationship with the audience is about them appreciating watching biologists willing to think out loud, to show their work, to explain why they depart from the conventional wisdom. And then I think it's very rewarding in some sense over time to watch a ridiculed perspective go mainstream and you think, oh, geez, I know why they didn't agree with the mainstream perspective and that allowed me to be you know, months or a year ahead of the mainstream. That's kind of an exhilarating phenomenon. So Mm. I think that's part of why people are paying attention to us, that actually just seeing people share their work, own up to their errors is, uh, is uh, a healthy and fun thing to do. Mm. So you're not saying that everybody has to suddenly become a virologist. There's a, a way of approaching a field of expertise during times of crisis or during times in which that uh, 
complete cohort of individuals are suspect because of self-interest, all these other things. There's a way of parsing that information, that field of, of approaching any given person, any given virologist's statements and weighing them in some way or, or uh, aggregating all that knowledge in order to kind of produce some sort of uh, future perspective. Or Yeah, you don't have to become a virologist, and I'm not one. But there is a way you can look at the large number of people who are venturing opinions in this space. And if you do kind of the same trick that I'm suggesting that natural selection does, where you decide, I'm going to leave most of this on the cutting room floor, and I'm only going to accept things where somebody has demonstrated the capacity to depart from the conventional wisdom, where somebody has demonstrated a willingness to own up to errors that they made in the past in order that their model improves in real time, and has demonstrated insight, right? Then I can limit my search down to a small subset who I have reason to believe are being straightforward with me about what they're saying. And mm -hmm. then when I take a sort of general evolutionary toolkit and I hear things said by people I have reason to trust and they don't quite add up, I know one of two things must be going on. Either I know something they don't know or they know something I don't know. Either way, that's a place to spend time. Right. So, for example, early in this pandemic, there was a lot of information suggesting that the diagram that's in all of the textbooks about how a virus invades a cell was misleading. That the amount of contact with a virus, with this virus, with COVID-19, with SARS-CoV-2, the amount of contact that would give you COVID-19 was actually a quantity. So it wasn't true that a virus getting into your system and invading a cell was the key to understanding what was happening. Something else was going on. There was a matter of dosage. Now, why would there be a matter of dosage? I couldn't figure it out at first. And so the question was, is something incorrect about the data that suggests a dosage relationship? Or is there something about our understanding of the interaction with the body that was off? And it turned out that the answer was more or less known, but it took time to find it. It had to do with innate immunity rather than acquired immunity. That is to say, our system has kind of two layers of immune system. It's got a layer of immune system that deals with things more or less generically. And then there's a layer that gets very specific about particular pathogens. That's the one that we are trying to train with things like vaccines. Hmm. But the first layer, the layer that deals generically, can actually handle a certain amount of virus. In a healthy person, it can handle a certain amount of virus. And only when you exceed its capacity to handle it does somebody get sick. Now, this actually had huge implications for how you should behave. It meant that you didn't have to worry about brief contact with an infected person as you moved about the world. What you needed to worry about was small spaces where a sick person would tend to fill them up, right? In such a space, a timer was going. And the point is, if you were there for a minute, you were probably going to be fine. If you were there for five minutes, it's a different story right? So these super spreader events tended to be people in spaces in which one individual could effectively 
create enough uh, virus and put it into the the air that everybody would be breathing it in, right? So in any case, what I'm really getting at is you could detect that something needed to be understood by the mismatch between the model for how viruses infect people and the evidence suggested something worth exploring. And of course, given time, the mismatch became, or the reason for it became clear. Okay. So this, got to be careful here, but you're tickling my imagination. Sure. So a year ago, I asked you, did the world learn from Evergreen? And are we inoculated to an Evergreen event? And you said, yeah, we're pretty good. We're, we're able to call out the bad actors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think you mentioned Jesse Smollett. It's kind of, we're, we're getting better at telling good actors from bad actors. And then a week later or two weeks later, America went evergreen on a massive scale, massive scale. And it was very, very similar between what was going on across the country and what happened in our little corner of the world. So there's a lot to talk about with that, but I'm thinking <clears throat> there's something, I don't know if this is a metaphor or actually a accurate model. I don't know to what degree a model is just a metaphor with varying degrees of accuracy, but there's something viral about critical social justice or wokeness or intersectionality, that, that entire framework of all these disciplines that results in different layers of behavior depending on your basically your age and how much power you have or how much stuff you have. So if you're young and you're infected by critical social justice, you'll tend to go out and do something very rowdy and force people to you know, raise their fist or bend the knee or whatever, and you'll make a big stink about it. If you have resources, then you tend to adopt all this training and you tend to adapt uh, this kind of authoritarian move to create the structure that is going through all these different equity programs and stuff. And you see that at Evergreen where the students acted one way, the prof professoriate and the admin acted another, but they acted in conjunction to implement this. And then you also see that with the riots last year. And then in the wake of the riots, all of this CRT training comes barreling through every single institution. So, I'm just thinking in terms of an immune system response to that. Is it that if there's a general uh, immune system and then a sp specific immune system, if we wanted to inoculate people against critical social justice theory and all this behavior, do we concentrate on the general or do we concentrate on the specific? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure if the analogy holds to that level, but there is something appealing about it. I will say, I do think the world learned from Evergreen, and it was inoculated, not sufficiently. Obviously, the woke revolution has taken over institution after institution, and it is very powerful. On the other hand, we, we have evaded the attacks that were so prevalent back when Evergreen melted down. So it was the case that you and me and everybody else who stood up against that stuff was demonized as far-right, alt-right, 
crazy, whatever it was, grifter, all of these accusations. And those accusations were never right. It's not to say that those people don't exist. They do. But the idea that there are a large number of people who are nonpartisan, center-right, far-left in my case, who are objecting to this on other grounds, that is now very, very clear. And as you have seen, we have fended off the accusations, and it has not been a simple process. It wasn't a matter of a misunderstanding. It actually required us to be steadfast in pointing out who we were, why we were objecting, and that it had nothing to do with some ideological commitment to move the world to the right. So what that means is that we now have a large number of voices in the public space who are understood to be anti-woke without being easily categorized in terms of some sort of shared ideology. That's an amazingly powerful thing that was not present in May of 2017. Mm -hmm. So there's that level, and yet the long march through the institution, or maybe the, the cascade through the institution, still goes on. And to what degree are you worried about that, concerned about that, or what's a useful perspective on describing that? So let's, let's divide the two spaces. The institutional space is completely infected. This has overrun almost every single institution you could name above a certain scale. Mm -hmm. That is a truly frightening fact because the functioning of civilization depends on institutions. They don't have to be perfect, but they do have to work. And the idea that every institution is being challenged with the same toolkit and they are one after the other falling prey to it ought to stop us in our tracks. There's literally no conceivable consequence that could not arise from this. This could result in the toppling of the United States and its subjugation by external powers that care far less about things like social justice than, than we do. It could therefore result in the military destabilization of the globe. So really any consequence is possible here. And to whatever degree anyone feels that, they, that we might be overreacting, they are making a terrible error. On the other hand, it is the institutions that are falling. The individuals are now carving out the ability to say what's true. And over time, sometimes very short periods of time, it becomes evidence that the individuals who hold no truck with this perspective are correct. In other words, we went through a wave of defund the police, abolish, right? We're now seeing crime waves in places where that talk was taken seriously, right? The police are not gone, and we're already seeing the crime wave that came from an instinct to eliminate them. Is there time to change course? There is. The battleground, as I see it, is the institutions that dictate whether or not the individuals who know better will be able to access the audience that needs to hear. So the really important question is what happens at Google, Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, etc. 
those institutions have the ability to shut down the credible anti-woke thought that has emerged so forcefully in the last four years. So th there's the institutional problem, which is a big question on how to solve that. Do you create uh, decentralized protocols? Do you create, you know, counter institutions? Uh, we see the counter institutions being uh, failing constantly. We, we have rumors of decentralized systems with uh, Jack Dorsey even. Uh, it seems like he's promoting... Uh, it seems like he's uh, not happy about the power that his company has over discourse. There's there's that level of the problem and the solution. There's also a really interesting question about how do you reach your haters or how do you reach people who are told that you are toxic or that you are not to be listened to? I just received a message today that my work is helping people change their perspective, but they are very aware because they're entrenched in certain communities of discourse that I myself am you know, told, uh, am, am talked about as, as untouchable. So how do, you, how do you reach people who think that you're untouchable? Or how do you foster a sense of curiosity for, for people with counter-narratives? Well, I have a number of different models that are relevant to this, but they all share a key feature, which is that there is a vast demographic in the middle that is playing a role it would prefer not to play. Those people are reachable. The true haters, you're not going to reach them, but you don't need to. What you need to reach are the people who have been persuaded, perhaps, of something wrong or have been induced to remain silent about what they understand. Those are the people uh, who make up the vast bulk of the population. They have plenty of power if they stand together to to restore our course to a reasonable one. Hmm. And so I would say that's one element, is recognizing that it is, in, especially in an era where people are afraid to speak and are regularly punished for saying certain things, it's almost impossible to know what the average person actually does think, because in general, they are self-censoring or they have been booted from some platform and so their voice exists at a very low amplitude. But recognizing that the heuristic for judging what public opinion is is biased in a direction we can all see mm -hmm. because of self-censorship and because of overt censorship. Uh, we have to trust in the fact that there are far more smart, aware people out there than is evident. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is I routinely on many different topics think that people are too heavily biased to short timescales. That is to say, people tend to think about whether or not an argument has succeeded or failed based on what happens within the conversation or yeah. shortly thereafter rather than over the next five or ten years. And if you pay attention to the longer timescales, I think we are doing far better than A, one would predict, and that B um, – than is necessary to win. In other words, we have to keep playing this game and get better at it in order to win. And I would point out there is a evidence of this being the case in the COVID-19 situation because we have now been through more than a year 
of um, absolutely steadfast insistence that the virus could not possibly have leaked from a laboratory. That insistence came from virologists, it came from the WHO, it came from the platforms that claimed to fact check. And suddenly, in the last week or two, the dam has broken and the world now acknowledges that that perspective is not right, which means it was never right. If it is plausible today that the virus escaped from the lab in Wuhan, then it was plausible all along. And all of those attempts to silence those who were claimed to be uh, wild-eyed Trump-supporting conspiracy theorists or whatever, that all of that was nonsense. It was just stigma. So, okay, that's a, that's a win over the course of a year and a half. That win is a model of what wins look like, which is to say, up until the dam breaks, you don't realize where you are. You don't realize that you're making gains and that ultimately the dam will not hold. And so what does that mean for other such topics where we feel that we are facing impossible odds and we do not detect our progress on short timescales? In many of the cases, the simple answer is keep going, use a proper model to predict what is coming, to anticipate challenges, don't pay too much attention to the day-to-day, -day, and ultimately you may be very surprised at uh, where, where you actually were during the battle, because in part the enemy wants to deny you information about your own successes. Hmm. What is the significance? I do not understand the significance. This is why I ask. Well, what is the significance of a lab leak as opposed to a bat bite hypothesis? There are a number. There's one that we all agree on, all of those of us who've been fighting to, uh, to force the truth into the open. And when I say the truth, I do not mean the truth that there was a lab leak. I mean the truth that the evidence points that direction which suggests that we need a proper investigation. But if this was a lab leak, the primary importance, the part that we all agree on, is that it implies something about the hazard of the research that created this pathogen. That the arguments that were made that we absolutely had to enhance viruses in the lab so they were more infective of people so that we could investigate how they would function if they ever found their way into the world, that that work actually created the problem. And I think there's a very strong argument to be made that the logic that these things could leap from nature at any moment is actually wrong. It's not to say things don't move from nature to people. They do. But the chances of one being this devastating were vanishingly small, and we created exactly the monster that we, uh, that some imagined was likely to emerge at any moment. So, it has implications for the next pandemic in the sense that if we recognize, oops, this was a self-inflicted wound, which we made worse by pretending that it was natural from the beginning, that puts us in a much better position for the people, the smart, wise people to win out in that argument and to prevent the next such self-inflicted wound. The part that we do not all agree on, and the part that I think is vital, is that knowing where this pathogen came from, and if it came from the lab, how it was constructed 
actually gives us a tremendous amount of insight into what it is likely to do evolutionarily and how we should fight it. So I believe lives are actually on the line with respect to fighting the pandemic as it is. This is not an academic question with respect to COVID-19. It's a very live question. Now, that could turn out to be false. But what I will say is we've wasted um, much more than a year pretending that this had to come from nature, which both makes it less likely that we will find out the truth. Whatever evidence there was may well have been obscured. And so if... uh, if the Chinese, and by the Chinese, I don't mean the Chinese, I mean the Chinese government, if it decides to double down on uh, admitting nothing uh, or not allowing a proper investigation, then it's possible we never get good resolution on what this pathogen actually is and how it was created. Hmm. But if we were to find out, it is quite possible that there are um, things about its construction that would arm us, that would prepare us. And then the third significance, I would say, is it is not the only question of this type where the institutional voices have aligned themselves behind a perspective, a perspective that is clearly wrong. And yet, because they have the institutional force behind them, they are in a position to shape the conversation and therefore to shape our behavior. Mm -hmm. So I would say there are at least two others that are live in the Uh, the COVID-19 space. One has to do with the safety of vaccines. Safety of vaccines has three components. It has a individual short-term component. It has an individual long-term component, and it has a epidemiological component. There are questions on all three fronts. How safe are these things when you get them? How safe are they? Do they have effects on people in the long term? And will they shape the pandemic positively or negatively in the long run? Those are all questions that need to be navigated by people with no conflicts of interest. Hmm. Um, and then is there the such third, a person? <laughs> sure. Yeah, there are lots of people who have no conflict of interest, hmm. um, or people who are built of good enough stuff that they won't respond to their conflict of interest. I mean, that is, in fact, it sounds. Hmm. I think, uh, far-fetched to people who live in the business world or in regular society. But when you study science, you are studying a method that is built to tell you that you are wrong, even when it would be good for you to continue to lie to yourself. The scientific method reveals that you are incorrect whether or not you want it to do so. So good scientists actually ought to be absolutely willing to tell you things that are not in their interest. And it is the academic science system and the industry science system that amplifies the conflicts of interest to the point that people don't behave that way anymore. But yeah, mm-hmm. there are plenty of people who could could do the job. Yeah, it's just interesting. I, I have not inserted myself into this particular conversation for a variety of reasons, but I watch kind of the penumbra of dust-ups that are going on about it and how people respond so strongly to, do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? There's people, it's all political in the sense that everybody is gunning for it. And I'm looking at social media to see this, whether or not the vaccines are good or bad is if even asking the question, 
brings with it a bunch of assumptions and then accusations of harm or, or of, of malevolence uh, ascribed to the actor or to the asker of it. So it's almost impossibly fraught uh, to navigate. You're right. I mean, it is impossibly fraught. On the other hand, if everybody has the response that, well, it's too fraught, I'm not going to touch that one, yeah. then basically what you get is, you know, Dr. Fauci and the WHO and the CDC dictating our behavior. And frankly, it's just evident that what we are getting is not high quality insight. It's something that has been pre-processed to result in a particular conclusion that for whatever reason, the powers that be want us to reach. And even if their conclusion is right, that's not the right way to get there. Hmm. Okay. So if you stress not their outcome, but the process, then you might have a surer footing to persuade the people who are caught up in uh, more or less perfectly reactionary behavior. Well, you know, I, I don't know how to do it. I'm learning. Hmm. But in some sense, there's a kind of truth teller, whistleblower niche. And there's no manual for living in that space. It is something that one has to discover. And frankly, it's a very painful process of discovery. But um, in essence, we have a very complex problem in which the number of things that one can say for sure is small. But some of those things do not point in the direction of the predigested conclusions. Nobody can say that these vaccines are safe for the individuals who get them long term. Nobody. That's something you can say for sure. How come you can say it for sure? Because we are interacting with the immune system with a novel technology that has only been used in humans for a matter of months. Nobody can say what the impact of that technology is decades out. Nobody. So that's something we can say for sure. Certainly, if the answer is the chances that it does anything harmful in the long term are small, then surely we can have that conversation and we can say, yes, nobody knows for sure. But here are the reasons we think the chances of long-term harm are small. The problem is, then the question is, okay, well, what are those reasons? Why do you think this is safe long-term? And frankly, it's a conversation we have to have, irrespective of the consequences, because we are being strong-armed, as it were, into accepting a medical intervention on the basis that it must, must be made. And we have a right to participate in the conversation about whether the logic that was done on our behalf is correct. Hmm. There's so many... The COVID issue topic and all of the related topics, I, my imagination just keeps on seeing basically institutional failure on a variety of levels, on the media sphere, on the medical level, on the government level, you know, and then the municipality, all, every layer of government, and then the interpersonal level with how we communicate and talk about these issues. And that maps in my imagination, it maps onto the topics around critical race theory, it maps onto topics of, for instance, what happened on January 6th, what actually happened, and it's how impossible it is to ask that question and to get entangled in that. And even having a meta conversation about that is, it sends up all these uh, 
buzzers and, and alarm signals and stuff. But on so many different topics, on so many different levels, we are in a situation where there's a tremendous amount of chaos going on with personal opinion. There is a tremendous amount of skepticism or suspicion that we should have towards our institutions. And it's just, it's really scary. And it's going to, it seems like it's going to result in more and more conflicts or just outbursts of chaos if we don't figure out where to stand or on an individual level implement some sort of standing uh, that can engage with the institutions and start to rebuild them or at least uh, mitigate their decay in such a way that we land more or less on our feet as they tumble. So let me say what I think you just said in somewhat different language. We have just watched the system of institutions grudgingly acknowledge that this virus may have been the result of a high-level program to prevent pandemics. It may be a self-inflicted wound and that the institutions that dictate the boundaries of responsible discourse have been on the wrong side of this question for more than a year. Do you want that system now to tell you, oh, the vaccines are safe, they are necessary to the solution of this pandemic, ivermectin is dangerous, you must not take it. I don't want an institution that couldn't figure out that puzzle, frankly, to drive me home at the end of the evening. Right? Hmm. It's not safe. It is a dangerously corrupted institution, and it almost doesn't matter what force corrupted it. The fact is, if we look at its track record, it's drunk off its ass, and it's in no position to tell us how to think about these matters. It needs to get out of the way, and it needs to allow people who do know how to think about these things to have a frank conversation. And yes, it has to happen in public in spite of the hazard of that. Hmm. And how do you imagine that correcting? Or how do you imagine that playing out? Or what are the ways to inspire the outcome that you desire? Well, I, again, it's a, you know, it's one of these games where the, the whole nature of the game is to discover the rules. And somehow, we are having this conversation. Will this video be canceled? Because we have mentioned ivermectin? I, I don't know. But I don't think so, because the entity that would cancel this video for the mention of ivermectin will call attention to ivermectin if it does so. And it will call attention to somebody who, frankly, has just been shown to be right about the lab leak hypothesis. Hmm. The lab leak hypothesis is viable. In late May of 2021, we now all know that. Some of us have been saying that since, I don't know, April, uh, a year ago. So I guess the point is, if people are now looking into the world and trying to figure out who to trust, those mm -hmm. who have turned out to be right over a long period of time might be worth listening to. Now, okay. could you be right about the lab leak hypothesis and wrong about ivermectin? Sure. But the thing that would rather that we not talk about ivermectin, whatever the reason is that it doesn't want it discussed is now in a bind, which is that it has just proven itself to be unreliable. And uh, that's to the better. People should know that it's unreliable. Could you define 
ivermectin or tell me what that is is that like some sort of white powder that's just like cocaine only uh lilac sure uh i'll tell you but i must tell you the story is jaw-dropping and it sounds preposterous so ivermectin well we've been through a couple of those already brett so exactly exactly (laughs) Uh, so ivermectin is a drug it is a drug that has been in use widely for more than 40 years. The drug comes from, I believe, soil bacteria, was discovered by a Japanese scientist, Satoshi Omura, who shared his discovery with a chemist at Merck. And what they created with this discovery was a drug that fights several different parasitic infections, most prominently river blindness. This drug has proven to be exceedingly safe. It's on the list of WHO essential medications approved for use in very small children. And it appears to have extremely potent uh, impact as a prophylaxis for COVID-19 and also as a treatment. It greatly reduces the likelihood of contracting COVID-19 and it greatly reduces symptoms in somebody who has contracted it. Now, you will get pushback on that point, but if you look at the data, there is quite a lot of it. There are several meta-analyses that have looked at all of the various studies that have looked into the question, and the signal is quite strong in these meta-analyses, and the information that points in this direction is growing, uh, I would say, weekly. The place where the story gets very strange is that if you imagine that there is, oh, I should, uh, the key to the story may well be, this drug is no longer under patent. It's so old that anybody can make it, right? So there's not a lot of money to be made. It's very cheap. Um, So the amount it costs per dose, there's a range of estimates, but it's somewhere from the single digits in dollars up to, I've seen, 30 bucks. The competitor drug, remdesivir, is something like $3,000 a dose. Hmm. or a treatment. In any case, you've got a cheap drug, well understood to be very safe. It's a drug that's so safe that people in many parts of the world take it weekly and have for decades. It is approved for children. It prevents COVID at a high level, if we understand the evidence. If the evidence is accurate, and it certainly seems to be compelling, um, it prevents COVID, and it doesn't carry the risks of intervening or of uh, interfacing with the immune system in the way that a vaccine does, right? This is not functioning by changing the programming of your immune system in a way that could have unforeseen consequences. It's interfacing with the immune system in a generic way. Um, So the question is why, given that there has been evidence for its efficacy uh, and that uh, the drug is widely available, inexpensive uh, and has been established to be safe, why are we not using it? Why is it at least not on the recommended list of treatments? And that is where things become bizarre. The manufacturer of the drug has, in fact, declared that it is not safe for use in COVID, which is bizarre because, frankly, they've given away millions of doses of the drug for the treatment of parasitic infections. So they obviously believe in its safety in one context, and they've never explained why they don't believe in its safety in this context. Um, So 
the funny thing is that you will find in, for example, uh, the community guidelines for YouTube that you are forbidden to discuss the efficacy of ivermectin. Hmm. And we should probably look up the language and maybe you'll want to put it up on the screen or I don't know if you do, but, um, hmm. but there is something funny going on where despite the fact that there is a apparently safe and effective treatment for COVID that also works as a prophylaxis, there is institutional reluctance to admit that it works. Oh, I should also point out there is circumstantial evidence based on the fact that ivermectin is widely used in many countries in Africa, but not universally. We can look at the natural experiment that comes from the uh, differential consequences of COVID in these various countries. And that evidence too suggests that ivermectin use does seem to prevent at an epidemiological level the spread of COVID. So why is it being uh, downplayed? Why does the uh, why does the I'm trying to remember if it's the FDA or the CDC have a specific warning about not using it for COVID? A warning that suggests it's dangerous until you get down to the exact language, which seems to imply that taking too much of it would be dangerous, which would seem to be a tautology. Um, but in any case, this is this is a great mystery, and the one suggestive piece of evidence is that the uh, emergency use authorizations for vaccines require that there is no safe and effective treatment available for the disease in question. Therefore, if ivermectin were understood to be safe and effective, the vaccines would not have been granted emergency use, use authorization. And if ivermectin were understood now to be safe and effective, that authorization would apparently have to be removed. Hmm. Is that the explanation for why the world seems to be ignoring a perfectly useful and safe treatment? I don't know, but it is a discussion we're going to have to have. Hmm. How do you plan on having that discussion? Well, Heather and I covered this topic on uh, our last Dark Horse podcast last Saturday, and uh, it has gotten a tremendous amount of traffic. It has not been taken down by YouTube, and it's hard to know what the implications of that are. I will say, if it turns out that ivermectin is somehow not effective, then hopefully the discussion will surface that information and we will find out why all of the available evidence so far points in the other direction. Hmm. And if it is safe and effective, hopefully we will start using it widely. Even if your sense is the vaccines are absolutely as safe as necessary and we must put our foot on the gas in terms of giving them to people, A, there are lots of people who shouldn't have them, people who've had COVID, for example. It's not obvious why we would expose them to any danger of long-term consequences of a vaccine to a disease that they are already immune to. Um, and B, there are lots of us who are not convinced of the safety of these vaccines and we can use ivermectin. And even if ivermectin is not quite as effective as vaccines, and frankly, there's not enough information to say it may be more effective than vaccines at preventing the contraction of COVID, we don't know. But even if the only people you reached were people who had had COVID and people who uh, are reluctant about the vaccines, you could potentially end the pandemic with the combination 
of immunity from vaccines, from COVID, and from ivermectin. Why wouldn't we do it? Hmm. What is your predictive intuition saying about the the outcome of the pandemic and the lockdown? Where do you think? Uh, how do you think that's going to shape us uh, in the future? If if you're comfortable, or if you've kind of meditated on that as a society. Um, you know, unfortunately, Benjamin, it's all tied together. If it is true that ivermectin, for example, is an effective treatment and an effective prophylaxis for COVID, then that should be tremendously good news from the point of view of ending lockdowns and getting back to economic normal. Because since this is a drug that is so widely produced, and inexpensive, we could effectively ratchet up production and get it to people. And remember, in some sense, the purpose of these vaccines is to reach herd immunity. The combination of people who have had COVID and the people who have been vaccinated, if that reaches something in the neighborhood of, let's say, 80% of the population, which is uh, mostly immune to contracting COVID, then the point is an infected person doesn't tend to contact many people who are still vulnerable, right? So that then causes the the pathogen to go extinct, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have enough uh, available victims. So we could very quickly get ourselves to a place where COVID wanes and then disappears. And then we can go back to doing what we're doing. And we can have a very sober discussion about how never to let this happen again. Hmm. On the other hand, if business as usual in the pharmaceutical industry or ineptitude in our regulatory agencies or arrogance on the part of our social media platforms is going to prevent us from having that discussion and prolong the pandemic, then who's to say? The fact is, the longer this goes, the greater the chance is that a variant emerges that we cannot rid ourselves of, that something becomes a permanent fellow traveler of humanity. And this is why I'm so troubled by the amount of time it has taken to get to at least a reasonable discussion of the lab leak. We wasted a year. We wasted a year in which this was perfectly obvious. And that year was a year in which we might have stamped out COVID if we had gotten serious about it. And although we did a lot of things, I would say we never got serious about, you know, doing what made the most sense. Uh, and the problem is the longer we delay that, the, lo the greater the chance that we're just going to get stuck with a permanent version of this, which will be, as much as this has been a disaster, that will be an even greater disaster. It will be a perpetual disaster. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that the lockdown, the response to the virus will influence or has influenced our just our society on, on a cultural level. What are your thoughts on that? And how do we get back to normal? And what kind of vestiges of lockdown do you think will shape us going forward? Or what, what concerns do you have about getting back to normal and what that looks like? Well, I said at the beginning of COVID that we are never going back to normal. And I still believe that. Now, that does not have to be and ominous, we're never going back to normal. It could be that this experience will shock us into behaving in a reasonable way that will 
make us safer going forward rather than continue to jeopardize us. That's what I hope. But I think we've learned a lot. The fact is, at the beginning of COVID, we started to have the first discussions that I've ever heard in public about how pathogens really transmit and how our behavior interfaces. I'm now hearing proper discussions of things like vitamin D and sunlight, right? So while the institutions are playing games and pretending that there has been some ambiguity about whether you should wear your mask outside, and there never was, it was clear from the beginning, and Heather and I have been saying from the beginning, the evidence suggests COVID does not transmit outdoors except under maybe the most extreme of circumstances. And therefore, in light of the fact that vitamin D, which is made through contact with sunlight, is a key preventative of COVID, it makes sense to free people. Go outside, enjoy yourself in the way that you used to, outside where it's safe right? Indoors is dangerous. Outside is safe. By pretending that outside was dangerous and really no different from indoors, that you need the same precautions outside as inside, we basically did the following crazy thing. We pretended that the world was a place where COVID was a threat everywhere, when in fact, 99 plus percent of the world was pretty much safe. Why would we have done that? How much trauma did we create? How much disruption did we create by pretending that you couldn't just go outside to be safe from COVID, go outside where you might contact the sun, make some vitamin D and actually become safer? Why did we do that? It was insane. So we are having the discussion about how pathogens transmit. We have learned a lot. We have come to understand uh, that we have both airborne and aerosolized transmission in COVID and that that has implications for our behavior. We have come to understand that vitamin D is a key, uh, a key preventative and that our, therefore our behavior sitting inside staring at screens is not good for us. Going outside and being in the sun is good for us. Maybe vitamin D is something you want to supplement. It's something you can safely supplement. Many countries in Europe do supplement vitamin D across a wide range of foods for exactly this reason. Before mm. COVID, I should say. So in any case, we are getting wiser. At least those of us who are paying attention to the things that actually turned out to matter. And if we will be allowed by the institutions to discuss what we have actually discovered here, then we will get safer. If, on the other hand, the institutions want to pretend that they know what's going on and they want to continue to wag their finger at those of us who know how to read a scientific paper and understand what evidence for a drug's efficacy would look like, right? If they want to continue to do that, then what we will discover is that the real pathogen is thought control and that that is our first priority, dealing with that. Yeah, I was, again, uh, pardon my imagination, but when you're talking about going outside is dangerous, we have this systemic threat of COVID. I just kept on hearing in my head all this systemic threat of police violence or uh, white supremacy. It's the same thing. Stay indoors, stay afraid, uh, and and enforce this fear upon your fellow uh, man and, and allow that to happen. And when we think about thought control, uh, I pick up and I I like the idea of, of this niche space of truth-telling 
where you kind of have to, part of the game is figuring out the rules of the game on your feet. That's where I want to exist. That's where I find most creativity. And, and that's where I seek because I know that if I'm not in that space and in, in truth telling space or in breaking through, uh, conformity of what you can talk about or breaking through the narratives of what you expect to be there once you start having these conversations. If, if I'm not in that, then I know that I'm already dead or irrelevant in a way that I'm not actually alive anymore and as somebody who thinks. So how do you think that with the institutions behaving that they, as they are in a variety of different ways, most explicitly or materially through COVID and then through all this critical social justice stuff in an ideological way, are you mapping out ways? And over the past year, what have you seen the biggest gains in your work in breaking through these areas and beyond COVID? Uh, you had an amazing discussion with a number of very brilliant minds. They all happen to be black, but it was about race in America. That's, I think you've had over a million views on that. That, that might be one big win. What other wins have you had in forwarding? Well, again, I, I think the issue is, is time scale. And there have been many gains, right? wins are a matter of something more decisive but yes the black hmm. intellectual roundtable that i did on my channel has gotten a huge number of views and it has been uh quite influential on on people's thinking i'm i'm quite proud of it um the lab leak uh has suddenly broken through and become mainstream and at the moment it has now created a new battle in which all the people who got this wrong seem to feel entitled to write the history of what happened and are writing fairy tales about how somehow, I mean, it, this is amazing. It, it, you really need to look at some of these incredible pieces that have been written. So Donald McNeil wrote one, David Frum wrote one. Anyway, there's a whole little genre, and the genre seems to make the following crazy claim. It claims that Trump, having embraced the lab leak, they always call it a theory, but the lab leak hypothesis, therefore created a situation in which the press could not possibly have been expected to figure out the truth because they were obligated to oppose all things Trump. And it's like, well, okay, I think you just told me that you're not a journalist, but you play one on TV, right? That's pretty much what you just said. That is such a big L to post. It's... It's the most amazing thing. And it really does make me think, is all that Donald Trump needed to do to win the election to endorse Biden? Would that have forced people to vote for Trump? I mean, how crazy are these people, right? So anyway, we, you know, we won the lab leak issue. Not yeah. that the issue is settled, but we are now able to discuss the actual evidence in public. That's great. Uh, we are in uncertain territory with respect to whether or not we will ever get to a full accounting of vaccine safety. There's a question uh, on ivermectin. I think the uh, Unity 2020 was a very interesting phenomenon. It obviously did not reach a lot of people at the level that they ended up voting for it because in fact we had pulled the plug on it before the election mm -hmm. but from the perspective of carving out a territory and saying 
we absolutely need a nonpartisan, apolitical movement in this country to restore rationality to governance. I believe we made that point, and uh, it has affected people. And I, you know, every day I get correspondence where people are asking, "Okay, what's the next move for unity?" Mm, okay. Uh, you know, so there there are a lot of a lot of gains, and ultimately, the question is the institutions. What is going to happen to them? And if they are going to fall, what will replace them? They have mm-hmm. to be replaced with institutions that work. Mm-hmm. The alternative is to recapture them. Is that even conceivable at this point? Uh, I'm uncertain, but I, I think that's that's where we stand. With regards to Unity 2020. Why go national? So uh, I just want to put this in the context of what happened at Evergreen. You changed the room at Evergreen. You said Evergreen's not the room. And that is something that I learned from you and that I see when people ask, well, how do I, I'm, I'm caught in a situation just like Brett was. How do I deal with this? Well, the, the, your institution's not the room. Paul Rossi did this very recently with Grace Church High, High School, where he you know, he just went outside of that room and spoke to a greater audience. It seems like you can do that up to a certain scale. So you did that with Evergreen. Why not try to do Unity 2020 at the level of Portland and see if you can run that experiment at the level of Portland? And do you think that that would have been uh, how the gains would have been different as opposed to nationally? Why did you jump nationally? Well, uh, we went national because there was an opportunity that doesn't exist at any other scale, Hmm. right? You could not fix the Congress with a unity proposal. You might be able to do it over the scale of many elections, but there's no way to instantly shock the Congress into functioning. There is a way, because of the structure of our Constitution, to use the presidency to restore the system to order. One good leader can do it. And what Unity did was it said, actually, you know what? Constitutionally speaking, it doesn't have to be one leader. It could be a team. And uh, so anyway, there's an opportunity at that one and only level to do something you can't do at any other level. And so I still believe it was the right, it was the right idea. That said, there are many things you can do at other levels. And Unity, Unity 2020 was a particular proposal about a particular office. Unity At a particular a, point in history where a very particular yes. <laughs> madness was going on. Right. But the point is, it is part of a movement, a non-ideological, apolitical movement against the corruption that the duopoly has brought to the U.S. And unity will reemerge and it will speak much more broadly to what we ought to be doing. All of the things that we don't do because some party or other has figured out how to frustrate us in our quest to do what is in our collective interest, unity is going to speak for those things. Hmm. So I'm not against the idea that there's something to be done at the scale of, you know, of Portland or Oregon or, you know, the Congress. These things all, Mm -hmm. there's something to be done at each of those levels. But it's not, I, I think in some sense people because the only data point they have is Unity 2020, think that the idea is very narrowly focused on elections and the presidency, when in fact that was just the first place they saw it. Okay. What is the operating principle then? You, you said rational, uh, rational governance or something, but what, what's, the, what's the key core idea of Unity Party? 
I would say, if you look at governmental policy over the last several decades, in general, what the U.S. government does is unrelated to what is in the interests of the American public. The American public's interests are sometimes served by the action of the government, but that's incidental. The government is pursuing the objectives of many of these special interests that have captured it and corrupted it. Mm -hmm. What that means is that there are a lot of things which are in our collective interest to do that just simply aren't getting done. And there's no party to describe them because the duopoly has sucked up all the oxygen in the room. So what we need is something that says, look, it doesn't matter what ideology you belong to, right? You may be a conservative, I may be a liberal, and I'm not saying you are a conservative. That's for you to define, Benjamin. But I think I'm let's neutral. Let's just say, I did hypothetically. One of those tests. I'm gray, very gray. Fair enough. But let's say that you were a conservative, mm -hmm. okay? I'm very definitely a liberal. You and I have a lot to agree on that should be done before we ever get to the stuff where we disagree. Mm -hmm. And so those things are... Uh, you know, a bunch of policy proposals that are just waiting to be advanced. And if they were done, would be a spectacular win for the American people who at the moment are unrepresented in American politics. Mm -hmm. That's the mm -hmm. core idea. Mm -hmm. We're very attracted to disagreeing with each other. I've been trying to reform my behavior online, especially on Twitter, of stop being such a dunker and such a pissant, and, and I was just being against something. It's very, very difficult in that medium to get any traction unless you propose something that people can either agree or disagree with. Uh, you know, and the, and the more vehemently, uh, the better. Our, our attention, there's, there's a fault in our attention where we are attracted much more to where we can disagree than where we can agree. And it's very difficult to change that course. And I think that that's a bigger problem than any sort of institutional uh, issue. Because if we can't do that, then we can't reform the institutions. Well, I, you know, I think there are a couple things you said that line up together. You say it's more important than the institutional thing. And I, I think, you know, what you just said at the end there is that it's actually key to addressing the institutional question. And I yeah. agree. And then earlier in the conversation, you said that there was something about the COVID situation in which our fears were used to control us. Mm -hmm. And that that reminded you of the dialogue over in woke space where somehow, uh, we are led to imagine that trans people are being killed in the street every day, that uh, every interaction between a black person and the police is putting whatever black person is present in lethal danger and therefore irrespective of what crime may be in may be being committed, calling the police when blacks are present is somehow tantamount to a physical attack, right? These things are all nonsense. It's not to say that there are not issues to be addressed, but mm. the fears are outscaled. Yeah. And they are interfering with our ability to even hear each other and therefore to say, hey, we got a problem. Our institutions are all corrupt and they're putting us in danger and they're killing people, which is really what we should say. And the your point about the online culture and our tendency to dunk on each other I think is a facet of the same gem that it also is preventing us from recognizing, uh Oh, something got a hold of our institutions and it's driving us insane. Um, mm -hmm. that ought to be 
job one. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, propose to hose that down, hosing discourse with Brett Weinstein? Well, actually, this is an interesting question for me at the moment, because I think I've done a very good job over the long term of being very careful, right? I'm very direct in what I say, but I think I am taken to be uh, decent about it, right? I don't go after people typically. Now, I do occasionally, and I think it is important to recognize that there is a distinction between the requirement to steel man the position of an opponent when they are saying something that is said in good faith and the requirement to attempt to steel man them when they are not acting in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I draw that distinction, and I do feel an obligation to understand and voice my understanding of my opponent's position. Yeah, you were when, being snarky with Matthew Iglesias, I believe, the other day, when yep. he came out with the, oh, the mainstream media was already covering this lab leak hypothesis. Like, right. Whatever. Yeah, no, he did. And, and I then later went after David Frum, who frankly should know better. And I mean, the problem yeah. is, in these cases, no. the person making the argument in which they are trying to rationalize their own failure, Mm. I don't want them rationalizing their own failure. But what I know for sure is that they do not have a right to pin blame on those who didn't fail. And that's what these attempts to rewrite history on the lab leak are doing. Mm. They are attempting to say, look, we didn't listen to the people saying lab leak because they were crazy Trumpist right wingers. That's not what happened. And you don't, if I'm in that category, and if people that I have been partnered with in trying to get the truth of this matter into the public sphere, if those people are not guilty of being crazy right-wing Trumpists, then you don't get to paint us that way as you explain why you didn't understand this, right? Mm -hmm. You have an obligation to treat the people who got it right with respect. And so I don't feel an obligation to steel man somebody's rationalization about how they couldn't hear me because I was too closely associated with Trump. The fact is Trump was irrelevant to the question. What he did or didn't believe when he did or didn't believe it has no implication for whether or not SARS-CoV-2 leaked from a lab. None. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I don't feel the obligation to steel man it. So Mm -hmm. people saw me get a little hot headed in response to those attempts and some people challenged me and said, you know, this isn't like you. You're you're supposed to steel man the other person's position. And it's like, well, no, there, there's a prerequisite there, which is that the other mm-hmm. person is acting in good faith. And if they're not, then don't expect me to, mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the basic point is you can be, if you are highly socially sensitive, right, if you are overly aware of which way the wind is blowing, you are very easily manipulated in an era like this where Mm. the consensus is established behind closed doors and then enforced through community guidelines or whatever. So you have to be, to a large extent, uh, immune to or deaf to the social consensus in order to see clearly. What I think the answer to your question is, is that I am committed to trying to see what's true, 
it is not a process that is in any way immune to failure. Failures are regular, but over time, it proves out. It provides insight that you can't see if you don't commit yourself wholeheartedly to it. And the impact of an audience uh, tracking that process and watching that over time, even though there are vicious stigmas delivered in order to shut down lines of inquiry, that the simple commitment to figuring out what's true and not being over, overly socially sensitive actually proves out. It discovers truth more quickly. Uh, and basically, the institutions are always back on their heels admitting that they got something wrong. Uh, that, that That's very powerful to, for people to observe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The principled stand and gait, as in walking, not gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. What's something that brings you joy, Brett Weinstein? You know, so many things. So many things. Uh, I do think that's another sort of key to life is a certain recognition of just how lucky you are, right? Right. We all have bad luck and we have good luck. But the basic point is, look, if you're here and you're not uh, effectively enslaved by your economic position, if you're free to move about the world, to observe it, to interact with people, that's a gift. Hmm. And so lots of things that are seemingly mundane because they're so commonplace are actually reasons for immense joy. And even just, you know, in my own backyard, right, watching the Stellar's Jays tussle with each other is, it's magical if you notice it, if you look at it and think about what's actually going on there, right? It's a reason Mm -hmm. for tremendous joy. Hummingbirds, even better. I mean, what a spectacular thing to have Mm -hmm. just fly out of nowhere into your perception and right it's just stunning so i get tremendous joy out of that i get tremendous Mm. joy out of having uh, a lovely family Uh, we of course have our trials and tribulations but in general we've been very lucky we live very well in nice places we know spectacularly awesome people like you and you know there's a lot to be grateful for uh in that and frankly i'm not so thrilled with the way the world works at the moment but it's not boring Hmm. certainly (laughs) an interesting moment to be alive and to have some sort of role to play in the mm-hmm. way history unfolds is, is a privilege too. So I, you know, I could go on and on. There's a lot yeah, to be grateful yeah. for. And that's probably true for most of your audience too. And just even taking just the exercise of, Hey, what am I not noticing that if I was noticing it, I'd be thoroughly grateful for is, is pretty mm-hmm. worthwhile. Do you have a banjo or a garden or a gun range or some hobby or skill that you've been developing over the past year? You know, I have lots of hobbies, and unfortunately, most of them were upended by the move to Portland. Oh no! So, okay, yeah, yeah. When we when we that was a couple in, of years ago. No, it was. But the problem is, we had a a second building 
where we lived in Olympia. Olympia allowed us to have a, a second building. We basically bought a house with effectively a large barn, which we, Heather and I, then uh, built into a, a studio. And it was a basically dirty space where you could do projects and leave them you know, out, didn't have to put everything away. And we don't have that here. So a lot of my hobbies are sidelined. I do spend a lot of time lately on photography. I find there's something I've, I'm almost embar embarrassed to admit that the, I find the technology kind of compelling. Hmm. Uh, in fact, I've come to the conclusion that the world is getting uglier at exactly the rate that cameras are getting better. Right. So, <laughs> it's um, like the opposite of a deep fake problem. Yeah. Well, the, the point is the tech is really spectacular. Um, the stuff that one is really eager to point it at is getting more scarce. But uh, oh, yeah. but anyway, I'm enjoying, you know, I, I started out in photography as a high school student. And, you know, back then it was manual camera all the yeah. way down to having to wind it from one frame to the next right mm -hmm. and now we have these amazing tools just so incredible even understanding all of the things that they're capable of is very very difficult mm -hmm. and i'm enjoying seeing you know i mean my focus now is entirely about nature and i really i'm, I'm enjoying doing that and it doesn't take you know you don't need a building in which you can leave your yeah. carpentry project out to do photography so i guess that's that's a biggie is there going to be a blog out there a photo blog brett's photo blog you going to share know, them somehow? Right. i'm a little embarrassed about this too because i um i love taking photographs and i actually love sharing photographs but a the amount of post-processing that modern photography requires is substantial enough. And the ability, the fact that one no longer has to worry about the price of film results in huge numbers of pictures getting taken. Mm. And I'm much less good about sorting them. And frankly, I've been <laughs> showing pictures on Dark Horse that are, you know, pulled straight from the camera, you know, barely touched. And mm. that's foolish because, frankly, one shoots them now in a way that they're designed to be, uh, you know, enhanced with post-processing. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, uh, I guess if I had more time, I might set about taking the really good ones and, mm -hmm. and publishing them so uh, people who cared could, could look at them. But at some level, it's I, I am reminded frequently that a lot of my joy in photography is about taking the pictures and just managing <laughs> yeah. it rather than actually doing anything with them. Fair enough. You and Heather also have something to plug. It's coming out very soon, if I'm not incorrect. Or I hope you I'm are correct not incorrect. You're uh, correct. What's the title? And what is it? A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. It is a book forthcoming that Heather and I have actually, we were planning mm -hmm. this book for, I think it's, it's more than a decade. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's a book about the modern dysfunction that we all face, the ill health at a social level, psychological level, physiological level that we all face on the basis that we are mismatched with the environment we find ourselves in. 
We are evolved for past environments, and our mm. present environment is not only so different from our past environments, but also changing so rapidly that we can't help but be out of phase with it. And that is creating a tremendous amount of dysfunction. And the book is about how to think about that mismatch so that you can reduce its negative impact. Mm -hmm. And it's a book. Will it be an audio book? And who gets to read it? Uh, well, it will, I'm sure, be an audio book. Uh, who gets to read it? It's possible that Heather and I might trade off. But if it's got to be one of us, probably it would be Heather. For one thing, people hmm. seem to love Heather's voice. She's got a nice um, voice. She does have a nice voice. And so anyway, we have not, uh, we have not even talked about what the audiobook uh, would look like. But yes, I certainly assume that it will happen. When's the print version dropping? Oh, it's due out September something. Oh, and I thought it was in like July. No, it's due out September. Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, we're we're pretty excited about it. Uh, we have a large number of pre-orders, which is apparently unusual, but very cool. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty and exciting. If the lockdown is loosened, maybe you guys will finally get back on the road. Well, here's the thing. We are planning. I won't say too much because, frankly, I don't know how much we've talked about, but we are planning some on-the-road stuff. And I would say if you've been paying attention to Dark Horse, then you know that we're huge fans of the fact that you can dodge COVID just by going outside. So lockdown or not, you should uh, expect to see us out there. And uh, anyway, like we're going to picnicking. You guys are just going to do like a, a picnic tour of all the Oregon parks. Is that what's going to happen? You know, I would say uh, longtime viewers will also be familiar with the theme of campfire and its relevance oh. to our our toolkit. And so I don't know whether there'll be actual campfires, but thematically speaking, I would expect campfires. And it's perfectly reasonable to picnic at a campfire, uh, but something along those lines. Oh, wow. Sounds very yeah. adventurous, very fun. And that's coming up. Well, so stay yes, tuned. And your viewers, if they are interested in possibly going to an event, should pay attention. We will soon have a website up for the book, and they will be able to alert us to where on earth they are. And we are going to look at the map of where there is interest and try to visit places where people are excited to go outside and chat about stuff that matters. So you guys are going to do some hunter-gathering abroad, some long-distance, you know, slaying we, of boars and picking of berries? Uh, yes. We, <laughs> we may not actually do any hunting and gathering, but we will show up as hunter-gatherers. Oh, no, stuck in, in the 21st or something? No, okay, no, no, nothing Not a clan like of the cave bear. Uh, cave bear. Cave bear. No, we, we are hunter-gatherers, among okay. other things. And we will be showing up in the 21st century dressed appropriately for modern times. <laughs> great, great. Well, it's been four long years since May 23rd, 2017. Uh, I'm sure I mean, we've covered so much already. And we, we covered, we spoke a year ago. I, I, I'm searching for a, a way to, to, to get you to sum up those four years or uh, something that you've, that's changed in your perspective since last we spoke about the events in 2017 that launched both of us in this weird space. 
Well, I mean, you know, in, in many ways, uh, I, I'm delighted to be participating with you in marking this fourth anniversary because what I think your your viewers will probably know is that we didn't know each other when we were sharing a campus. You were there as a student and Heather and I were teaching and I'm sure we, you know, ships passing in the night uh, were crossing through Red Square at the same time every so often, mm -hmm. but we didn't know each other. And so I remember becoming aware of you in that first video that you did from the library, the one, you know, oh, the man. one, How long no, have I come from that. Basement? No, it was, well, in some ways you've, you've come a million miles and in mm. other ways, your promise showed very clearly there. Right. Mm. So my sense, I mean, imagine it from my perspective, Benjamin, All right, I'm living my part of this crazy story in which I'm, suddenly at the epicenter of some event that defies description, right? And I'm looking at my screen at whatever emerges on this event, because obviously it's dictating the course mm. of my life. Mm. And here you are, you show up and you have a sense of humor and insight and you're not insane. And in fact, you say many reasonable things. And uh, from a place that I recognize, it's a library I frequented, and you promised to come back and give updates. And so it was like this little delightful discovery that hmm. there was a non-crazy person who was actually interested in describing this mm. event from some perspective with which I had no contact. So anyway, that was great. And um, you have not disappointed, my friend. You have done hmm. wonderful work. And you have done what I think is spectacularly important work. Right. Hmm. So I, I've, I've said this and I probably said it to you before, but it's, I think, worth saying again. As the events were unfolding, especially the canoe meeting, there was <laughs> Sorry. Right. just the inexhaustible source of absurdity for me that freaking well being in that room i was just talking with another professor who was in that room who uh will remain anonymous but they were like what is going on and they they actually went to the longhouse and and watched all the singing around and the dancing around the students of a certain race yeah i i i couldn't get there because i wasn't getting on the canoe and i don't swim that fast so <laughs> <laughs> but so imagine I'm sitting in that room. The thing is like an out-of-body experience in some ways because periodically uh, I am being talked to directly from the stage, right? If you're going to be an obstructionist, work on your own, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that was directed at me. I know it was. And I'm sitting there and it's a very lonely experience to be mm -hmm. in a room full of people most of whom have no idea what the meaning of this crazy event is. Most of them probably don't even realize the event is crazy. And thinking, there's no way of capturing hmm. what's happening here. In fact, you may remember, I was concerned that Evergreen would not release the footage of that meeting because it was so beyond the pale that I thought when they realized what they had done, they would be too smart to ever let it out. And so, in fact, I sent an email, I think, that said, hey, uh, is that footage ever yeah. going to emerge? Because I think people really need to see it, right? Yeah. 
Um, but in any case, you know, you come along and you document everything that took place at Evergreen at an incredible level, which means that when, when historians look at what the woke revolution was, hmm. and they look at Evergreen because it was a significant event in that revolution, there is an ability to understand how it unfolded and therefore to unpack the mindsets of those who contributed to it in one way or another at a level that would, uh, without you, I think, largely have been lost to history. And so anyway, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that that didn't happen. I'm yeah. also very grateful because there's so much misinformation about me and what I was motivated by mm -hmm. and, you know, so much nonsense about, you know, there were only 200 seats. So, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. as a grifter yeah. yeah whatever whatever the the particular phony narrative is there's so much of that stuff that it would be a lot more unpleasant if you hadn't done such a great job of documenting what actually happened and uh it, anyway it thanks. was very very interesting to realize or to watch a video of the three now rescinded presidential candidates be asked about that event in a very disingenuous way, but they were still asked about that event, uh, about how to handle the alt-right backlash uh, that Evergreen received, mentioning nothing at all about what happened. And all three of those individuals didn't give on that they knew at all what had happened. So the college has been very uh, effective, uh, I guess, maybe, of covering up what happened. I don't know. Maybe the only people who made it to that end of the process just happened to have not looked into what happened. But it's very interesting to see how their heads are in the sand and they're looking for somebody to join them. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I didn't look deeply into the uh the search but i did have the sense that what actually happened was that the faculty who made this happen in the first place were effectively laying down the law mm -hmm. and the idea was we want you to join us only if you subscribe to our mythology mm -hmm. and that mythology if you did subscribe to it and you became president of evergreen would prevent you from doing what needed to be done to save the institution. So I, I suspect that this has a lot to do with why uh, the candidates dropped out, which was you wouldn't sign up for that job if you were also at the same moment robbed of the tools necessary to restore the ship, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I was really excited yeah. about one of the candidates. I, I thought one person could have turned it around. Um, but apparently... There's a bunch of drama that I haven't uh, released yet about the way that the faculty were gunning from one candidate and acting. They just act like such knobs. It's just amazing. <laughs> how, poor act, how poor they act towards each other uh, in a condition of seeking power and to, to entrench their, uh, their hold over things. Well, you know, they're, they're, are they battling over a control of a sinking ship? But at what yeah. point? Does the instinct to self-preservation result in somebody being empowered to just simply move forward and not be responding to 2017 
to plot a course for Evergreen that makes sense from the point of view of just simply bringing students back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? In other words, they are somehow incapable of understanding where they are and what jeopardy they're in. And I cannot fathom it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I hope that Evergreen as a a lesson doesn't map out how everything else is going to go. So it kind of, it foretold 2020, I hope it's not foretelling the complete demise or the takeover of our institutions by a very narrow, narrow-minded and, and very loud-voiced contingent. But maybe that's how it's going to operate. I don't know about the predictive power of Evergreen as an institution mapping it on to well, greater levels. I think you're being too gentle. Evergreen, the degree to which the meltdown at Evergreen predicted the meltdown of the West more widely Mm. suggests that the fate of Evergreen is a cautionary tale. And the question is, will we understand it as such? Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. We don't know the answer, but I don't see many people have understood the analogy between what happened at Evergreen in 2017 and what happened uh, to the, West more broadly in 2020. But why don't they extrapolate? Here's the danger we're in. Evergreen is a failed college. It would have gone under long ago if the state had not continued to infuse cash and prop it up. So Mm -hmm. in other words, the, the errors of the Evergreen community were fatal errors. We are now making those errors at an impossibly large scale. Hmm. They're still fatal errors, right? That's actually provable, Hmm. right? If you don't have any institutions that can figure out how to think and you're attacking the idea that math reveals any kind of truth, that long-standing, utterly robust biological conclusions like males and females are different and there's something we can say about those differences. If you're attacking these things, if you're saying out loud, merit doesn't mean anything. Merit merit is the way certain people cheat, Mm -hmm. right? You're effectively describing a mindset that will destroy everything from the inside. Hmm. We have an obligation for your benefit as well as ours, to ignore you. If those are the things you're saying, you're effectively a person in the midst of a psychosis. It is not our obligation to humor your psychosis in a way that is going to allow you to harm yourselves and us. It is our obligation to ignore your psychosis and do the right thing. And in fact, two plus two does equal four. Men and women are different. Yes, there is racism, but no, it does not dominate every interaction in society at all times. Yes, there are problems with bad cops, but no, it is not true that all cops are bastards, that people would be better off if we abolished the police. None of these things are true. They're all dangerous ideas. Any adult can see that. It is time to ignore them. And Evergreen tells you why. Evergreen (laughs) failed, right? It's a corpse that has been reanimated or has been, you know, kept on life support. And that is the only reason it still exists. So let's learn the lesson before it's too late at a larger scale. Well said, Brett Weinstein, Firebrand.
Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this uh, wonderful return to Evergreen, <laughs> which is actually a program that they ran every year. <laughs> I remember that. I remember. <laughs> You guys have a book coming out. You have a very robust podcast. You guys are doing excellent. It's great to see your success. And you also do interviews. Is there a, a regular uh, like schedule for that? Like once a week you, you, do, uh, you bring in somebody? And you've been doing a lot of those. Really enjoyed you know, your Peterson interview. That was very uh, informative, educational for me. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been something like once a week uh it's not regularly scheduled in that way but yeah i, I yeah. shoot for once a week and i at the moment there are so many interviews that need to be done hmm. you know i could do, i could do two a week for you know the next three months before i we would even have to think about who i haven't uh, found yet but hmm. uh yeah there's a lot to do um glad you're watching glad you're enjoying it uh i also really like your content and uh am, you know i'm Pleased to uh, have been put in touch with you by crazy events. Yeah, it's been a great blessing for me as well. I will end the recording. Uh, thank you for swinging by, Brett Weinstein. Uh, thanks for having me, Benjamin Boyce. Um, I look forward to next time. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.